We'll hear argument next to number 00853, uh, Porter versus Nussel. General Blumenthal. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case is about the meaning of the term prison conditions, and the reason it is here is because the Second Circuit misinterpreted that term contrary to the purposes of Congress and the meaning given that term by this Court. In fact, Congress adopted this Court's language when it passed the Prison Litigation Reform Act of 1996 and adopted the meaning of that term given to it by this Court in a line of cases, Prizer v. Rodriguez, the Bronson case, McCarthy v. Bronson, and Wilson v. Sider, that very clearly include single-episode and excessive force cases, which the Second Circuit Court of Appeals excluded in its decision. It interpreted the term prison conditions to exclude those kinds of single episode and excessive force instances of misconduct by prison officials. What, what, what's the universe uh, of conditions and non-conditions that you would suggest? There was considerable discussion in the brief about the distinction between 1983 suits and habeas corpus suits. Uh, you would not draw the line there, would you, or, or would you? Prizer v. Rodriguez draws the line between habeas corpus petitions, on the one hand, challenging the fact or duration of confinement, and on the other hand, conditions of prison life or conditions of his prison life, as it refers to the petitions that we think are the universe that would be included in 1983 actions. Virtually any conditions of prison life ought to be regarded as conditions of confinement cases. Can you give me an example under your theory of a case that is not covered by habeas corpus, but that is also not a condition of prison life, which is a 1983 suit? When, When could a 1983 suit lie under your theory? Our position would be that all of those 1983 lawsuits ought to be subject, are subject, to the exhaustion requirement. There are no exclusions. You can't think of any suit brought by a prisoner that is uh, not controlled by the term conditions unless it's a habeas corpus suit. Or if it were completely unrelated to prison life. An example might be, for example, a lawsuit against a state tax commissioner, for example, just to take one that seems relevant in light of the earlier argument today, where the prisoner is claiming that he's been denied a refund to which he's properly entitled. You're saying that all Eighth Amendment claims under 1983, which is what most of the prison cases are, they claim that they've been deprived of a constitutional right because they have been sentenced to prison and the conditions of that prison, whether it's, a, whether it's a, an isolated beating by a guard or anything else, are unduly, uh, are cruel and unusual. 
Yes, Justice Scalia. All Eighth Amendment constitutional claims, indeed all constitutional claims under 1983, this Court has never established a hierarchy among such claims regarding excessive force claims as deserving greater priority so that they ought to be spared the exhaustion requirement. In fact, it is specifically said in Wilson versus Garcia that, for example, on statute of limitations questions, there ought to be uniformity and certainty so as to avoid the kind of litigation that also was the purpose of Congress in passing the PLRA. And that is really one well, of that, the, that, the key points here. That's, that's an easy left line. What, what you're saying is that the minute we begin defining a universe of conditions which is smaller than the 1983 suits generally, we have a whole jurisprudence that has to be tested uh, and create satellite litigation, etc. And I understand that. I'm just wondering if, if your definition is prevailing, uh, Congress would have used those words, conditions. It would have just, just, done, it would have just said all 1983 suits involving prisons, period. Justice Kennedy, Congress used that term because it was used by this Court to describe a category of the universe as set forth in Prizer and, again, in McCarthy v. Bronson, where the Court faced a similar issue under the Magistrates Act, the non-consensual referral of petitions to magistrates, and said that all of these cases, 1983 cases, are indeed conditions of confinement cases, and Congress wanted to use that language and that meaning given by this term so as to avoid the corollary, or as you put it quite well, satellite litigation that in fact, in fact has been spawned in the Second Circuit by the Nussel case. And we see it, for example, in Royster v. United States, which is before this Court on CERT, where Excessive force is no longer even involved. It's a particularized instance, as the Court of Appeals referred to it, of denial of the documents, legal documents, that the prisoner claims he is entitled to receive. And courts then and now would have to decide what kinds of cases are excessive force, if they are mixed with other cases that may not be excessive force, if they seem to involve, in some respect, Ongoing conditions. You can certainly uh, find some Eighth Amendment claims that have nothing to do with with excessive force. I think and a, a case comes to mind that we decided earlier this term, a case called Malesko, which came from the Second Circuit. It, it didn't come here on, under the Prison Litigation Act, but what happened there was that the prisoner had a heart condition. He ordinarily was allowed to use the elevator to go up to the sixth floor cell. This day, the prison attendant said, no, you can't use the elevator. So he walked up the stairs and had a heart attack. Now, that case was brought under the Eighth Amendment. I take it under your view that if if it were a prison litigation action, he should have to exhaust administrative remedies. Exactly, Mr. Chief Justice. He ought to be required to exhaust because in that case, for example, the prison administrator could and might well make adjustments to the facilities, might do retraining, different decisions on hiring. In fact, General Blumenthal, on the other side of that is the argument that Nussel makes that he said that the guards told me if I report what they did, uh, they would kill me. So what are their assurances? You said the, the value of a prompt notice to the 
prison that this is going on so that they can cure it? He says, if I told, they said they, they were going to kill me. Are there assurances in the system that there isn't going to be retaliation of someone who makes an internal complaint? Certainly in Connecticut system, Justice Ginsburg, there are such assurances. And in the joint appendix at uh, 11 and at other places, there are requirements for confidentiality, for example. There is a requirement for an informal contact or request. In the Connecticut system, the commissioner entertains, personally reads, is on the floor, and indeed there is the requirement that the lieutenant make two rounds every day, that a captain make one round, that he be or she be accessible in those circumstances, and that protection be provided. And that is, as a matter of fact, one of the advantages of exhausting because it assures timely, prompt, Attention. General Blumenthal, I, I don't really understand this. The, was the threat that the guards made, if you tell somebody through an administrative internal procedure, we're going to kill you, but it's perfectly okay for you to go to a court directly? That is, we, we just really don't want you to exhaust administrative remedies. We'll kill you if you exhaust administrative remedies. But if you go right to the court, that's okay. Is that realistically what the threat was? Justice Scalia. So this problem you have it no matter what, don't you? You, the, you can't the threat of, that of retaliation was more general. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. And it was never verified, of course. Prison guards don't think administrative law generally. Well, they're learning, Justice Scalia. <laughs> and part of the claim here was one of retaliation. Was but he still it, in prison when he brought the case? He was in prison when he brought this lawsuit. He waited for three years. He waited until literally three to five days, depending on whether you look at the complaint or whatever, until the statute of limitations was about to expire. And then he went to court. It was not a timely, emergent, exigent plea for help. And if there had been a real threat physically to him, the prison administration would have afforded a far more effective means of protection than going to federal court and seeking some remedy. And, he, by the way, he sought money damages. He didn't seek any protection or injunctive relief than going to federal court and seeking some remedy far in the future. The excessive force claim, and I want to be very frank about it, is intertwined with the single episode contention on which the Court of Appeals also relied. And in our view, the excessive force claim that the threat of physical harm is a more difficult one because it's raised in this Court's cases in Hudson uh, v. McMillan and uh, Farmer v. Brennan, which deal with the element of proof, the elements of proof that have to be provided to make out a claim with the standard of intent that has to be shown. The, the, you, you acknowledge they do draw this distinction between prison conditions and excessive force cases? They do, Justice Kennedy, but only for the purpose of the standard of proof or intent. And this Court has made that distinction very clear in Crawford L. v. Britain which we have cited in the briefs at 523 U.S. 574, and particularly 
at uh, 585, the Court draws the distinction, because in, in Crawford L., it is saying that a heightened standard of intent need not be shown, uh, should not be required, in order to protect prison officials from frivolous lawsuits or from discovery. And the Court says, we have a law that will do that. We have the PLRA. And it says about the PLRA, most significantly, and I'm quoting from 585, most significantly, the statute draws no distinction between constitutional claims that require proof of an improper motive and those that do not. So the Court there, and and it goes on to say, if there is a compelling need to frame new rules of law based on such a distinction, presumably Congress either would have dealt with the problem in the Reform Act or will respond to it in future legislation. What the Court is doing there is saying, and it does so after a footnote that cites Farmer and refers to the Eighth Amendment, that is to say, Footnote 7, we don't mean that prison conditions should exclude the excessive force claims, simply because we have said in Farmer and Hudson v. McMillan that under the questions presented there, they would do so. So the the Court, I think, has answered, this Court has answered that question. And it this is the citation to Crawford L. Crawford L. is 523 United States, 574, and I have been quoting from 585. Thank you. And 597. The, the quote was from 597. But uh, I, I want to make clear, in, in fairness, that quotation is not central to the holding of the case which I mentioned earlier, it is uh, a distinction that the Court draws so as to, in effect, provide reassurance that the Prisoner Litigation Reform Act will do the job of eliminating frivolous litigation, as indeed it did in 1997-AC, where it provided for dismissal of actions that are frivolous, malicious, or seek monetary damage from a, an official who is immune. And it uses the term prison conditions. In fact, prison conditions is also a term used in 199.7EF, where there's a reference to the pretrial proceedings that can occur by means of video or telephone or other telecommunications technology. There is no reason that the term prison conditions in those sections of the statute ought to exclude excessive force cases or single episode instances of misconduct. And indeed, it would do violence. It would be directly contradictory to the purposes of Congress, which were to reduce the volume of litigation, particularly frivolous litigation, to give prison administrators a chance to correct errors or mistakes, and to reduce the interference of federal courts in prison administration and to provide a better record if there is going to be resort to the federal courts. 
With the Court's permission, if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, General Blumenthal. Uh, Mr. Gorenstein, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, for four reasons, actions that challenge particular instances of unlawful conduct, such as excessive force, are actions with respect to prison conditions that must be exhausted under the PLRA. First, in three cases, this Court has used the terms prison conditions or conditions of confinement to refer to particular instances of unlawful conduct. And in one of those cases, McCrary against Bronson, it applied the term to a single episode of excessive force. There's no reason to think that Congress intended any narrower meaning here. Second, the purposes of the exhaustion provision are to give prison officials an opportunity to resolve problems within the prison by themselves and to reduce the enormous volume of prison litigation in federal courts. In terms of those two purposes, there is absolutely no reason to distinguish between actions that challenge particular instances of unlawful conduct, such as excessive force, and any other sort of prisoner complaint. Uh, prison authorities, in fact, have a particularly strong interest in resolving complaints about staff misconduct on their own, and grievance procedures are fully effective to do that without any need for significant federal court lit- lit- uh, litigation. Third, as this Court has recognized, it is extremely difficult to administer a line between isolated episodes or particular instances and more systematic practices or actions undertaken pursuant to a policy. Any effort to do that would generate substantial additional litigation on a threshold collateral issue when Congress's goal was to reduce the amount of judicial resources devoted to prisoner complaints. And finally, uh, creating an exception for particular instances of unlawful conduct has the potential to create an enormous loophole in the exhaustion requirement. Already that exception has been applied by the Second Circuit to retaliation claims, to confiscation of property claims, and it has the potential and capability to to be applied to a wide variety of prisoner complaints that are directed at the actions of individual officers. It is very unlikely that the Congress that uh, uh, amended this exhaustion provision for the express purpose of making sure that dramatically uh, increased number of cases would have to go through the exhaustion process would have simultaneously cut out that large category of claims that could benefit from the exhaustion process. Could you tell me on your point one, you you cited the case where excessive force applied to a a prison condition applied to a single incident. What was that case? McCrary against Bronson. And was that pre or post enactment of the litigation reforming? That's pre enactment. Pre enactment. And, and in that case was a construction of the Magistrates Act um, that had non consensual referral um, in cases involving conditions of confinement. And the court interpreted the phrase conditions of confinement to embrace single incidents, including excessive force, and rejected an alternative construction that is similar to the one adopted by the Second Circuit here, that prison conditions refers to systematic practices. And it did so for 
the same reasons, really, that you should reach the same conclusion here. The Court said that the purpose of that Act was to reduce the workload of Federal courts, and that would further that purpose. And it said that trying to draw that distinction between individual actions and systematic practices would provoke and generate a whole new round of litigation when what we're trying to deal with here is something that's trying to save time. What about Hudson and Farmer? Hudson and Farmer show that the term prison conditions can be used in a narrower sense and that context matters. But there the context was in defining the substantive elements for proving a particular kind of Eighth Amendment violation. And the substantive standards for proving a claim really have nothing to do with whether a claim should be exhausted. The context we have here is an exhaustion provision. And the purposes of exhaustion, as I have said, are to give prison officials a chance to act first to solve a problem and to reduce the volume of litigation. And in light of those purposes, it simply makes no sense to adopt the narrower meaning. Instead, the Court should adopt the broader meaning that comes from Prizer versus Rodriguez and McCrary against Bronson and Wilson against Sider. Of course, still in all, even in Hudson, I guess, uh, drawing the distinction between uh, uh, continuing prison conditions and single-incident prison conditions, uh, or single incidents that aren't prison conditions, still involves you in the same problem of uh, satellite litigation uh, that, that, that you say would be one of the horrible effects of, of adopting the same interpretation in the present case. I mean, that didn't stop us from coming out that way in Hudson. Maybe well, it should have, but it didn't. Justice Scalia, two responses to that. One is that the line that was actually drawn as HUD, in Hudson, as I read it, is not between single instances and systematic practices. It's between excessive force claims and everything else, which is — does still have its uh, difficulties in administration, but maybe not quite as challenging as single instances versus systematic practices. The other difference is we're talking about applying something at the liability stage to make a determination on whether there has been liability enough, as opposed to what do we do right at the outset of litigation when somebody comes in with a complaint. It's a threshold question and generating additional litigation about that on a threshold question, on a collateral issue, it seems to me, is something that you would want to generate less litigation about, generally speaking. If the Court has no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Gornstein. Uh, Mr. Williams. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. When Congress enacted the Prison Litigation Reform Act, It did so on the heels of at least three decisions by this Court, which clearly defined the term prison conditions to exclude excessive force cases. And those cases start, of course, uh, with Wilson against Sider, uh, which expressly uh, held, and I will quote, the very high state of mind prescribed by Whitley does not apply to prison conditions cases. What was what was at issue in Wilson against Sider? Well, of course, that was a medical indifference case, deliberate indifference case involving the distinction between a single incident and multiple incident, uh, incidents. And to the extent that the Second Circuit post Nussel has gone on to, to, to attempt to draw a distinction of that kind, we do not defend it. The distinction which I think is applicable here in defining the term prison conditions is excessive force cases versus all other 
types of cases other than uh, So on on the other side of the line, so far as you're concerned, would be a number of single incident types of things that did not involve excessive force? Uh, Yes, indeed. I think that the the distinction is one that this Court has made it absolutely clear. The distinction is between — has to do with this mens rea that's required. If the mens rea is um, um, a malicious, sadistic, intending to cause pain, that's not a prison condition. If it is, however, deliberate indifference, that is a prison condition. But but, But, why would Congress have made that distinction and said that one — the kind of cases you refer shouldn't exhaust administrative remedies, whereas the other one should? It it doesn't — I can see you can can certainly draw a definitional line, but why would Congress have said case A exhaust, case B don't? Well, excessive force cases are different. They've always been different under this Court's jurisprudence. There are — uh, many protections that are already built in uh, to avoid frivolous litigation in the excessive force uh, context. For example, the standard itself, cruel, malicious, sadistic, is a very tough one to meet. Second, Leatherman, of course, did not uh, 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 remove the no- uh, or impo- um, excuse uh, getting away with just notice pleading. It required fact pleading so that when you combine the requirement of fact pleading with the high standard that has to be met, there's a very, it's a very rare case that will pass a 12b6 uh, motion if it's an excessive force case in the first place. Isn't the answer to your argument, though, the answer that Mr. Gornstein gave a moment ago when, when he referred to the significance of context? If, if the issue before the Court uh, involves a distinction among different kinds of prison cases, then we can certainly understand the distinction when we say conditions are different from particular incidents, and if you refer only to conditions, you're meaning to exclude particular incidents. But if we're trying to draw a distinction between prison cases and all kinds of — all other kinds of 1983 cases, which was the case when, when, when Congress passed this statute, then I suppose it does make good sense to use prison conditions in a much broader sense, to cover everything that might come out of prison litigation to distinguish it from other kinds of 1983 cases. And isn't that the answer to your, to your argument based on, on our use of the term in certain cases? I think that that's more a policy um, issue than a statutory construction issue, and I think that this is just a simple case of statutory construction. But the, the argument, I mean, Mr. Gorenstein's argument is kind of a compared-to-what argument. He's saying when you use the phrase conditions, what are you comparing the conditions against? Are you comparing them uh, against other kinds of things that happen in a prison, or are you comparing them against other kinds of cases that might be brought under 1983? And the answer is possibly going to be quite different, depending on which context you're in. Well, I think the context in which this Court has used it, and therefore in which Congress is presumed to have used it, is the latter. Uh, The cases, the cases that including the one you cite, the government cites for the opposite proposition. I think cases say, and they have loads of language here which seem to say it, that Wilson v. Sider and three other cases did focus on the issue of single incident versus affecting several people. They all decided that single incident is within the meaning of prison conditions or the like, Senator Biden on the floor says, if you pass this law, you are going to sweep within it excessive uh, force cases, and nobody denies it, all of which from the most — and the language 
the language admits of, of uh, Justice Souter's suggestion, and he provides a purpose. So taking all those things together, why isn't the law in this case precisely along the lines he suggested? There is no doubt that the cases involved uh, do not see a principal distinction between single incident and multiple incident cases. That, I think, is where the Second Circuit in the post-Nussel cases has gone wrong. I don't defend that. I think that the distinction is the one that this Court has always drawn, which is between uh, uh, the excessive force mens rea, which is cruel, malicious, sadistic, intending to cause pain and nothing else, on the one hand. It's only excessive force? That's I mean, only excessive force. I, I see somebody in dire need of medical, of medical attention. And I sit there smiling cruelly. Uh, Please, get me a doctor. That is exactly. You call uh, that excessive force? No, that's deliberate indifference. This Court has often said that. That's exactly what we're talking about. Well, it's indeed. It has nothing to do with with the things you were saying then, cruelty uh, and and savagery, whatever. You can just as cruel and savage without applying excessive force, if if you do it right. We can have words mean whatever we want them to mean, but this Court has made it clear what it means when it refers to excessive force. And that is the, the mens rea that we were just talking about, which, after all, comes from Judge Friendly's seminal opinion uh, in Johnson against Glick. That, however, is not what we mean when we talk about prison conditions. And this Court has made that clear and made it clear at the time Congress enacted the PLRA. And I think that the important distinction between the PLRA and the Magistrates Act is that when the Magistrates Act was passed, all they had, and that's what this Court held in in, in the McCarthy versus uh, uh, Bronson, all they had to guide them on the, ter- on the meaning of the term uh, uh, was Prizer. And so following Prizer, of course, that's what it meant, and that's, that's why they used it that way in the Magistrates Act. But after this Court decided McCarthy and Brennan, this Court then went on to address the issue, focus on the language, and explain this, this very distinction that I'm arguing for here. Uh, and it was after this Court had done so in three cases, one after the other, that Congress then passed the PLRA. That's what I don't understand. Now, I, I didn't realize this. You're conceding, I take it, that an individual incident is a prison condition, Depends. as long as it isn't an excessive force incident. And at that point, although maybe there are three cases that say this, I'd, I'd, I'll read them, uh, why would anybody want to say that ref- a single incident refusing to feed a prisoner, a single incident refusing to give him medical assistance, a single incident refusing to let him take exercise, in fact, is a prison condition, but a single incident hitting him is not. I can't speak for Congress's intention, but I can speak for the meaning of the words as they've been defined by this Court. Uh, and there is an obvious distinction under this Court's cases. That's what we're talking about when we talk about statutory construction. And that's why I say that this is not a grand policy case. This is a Well, but we're also talking about reaching a sensible result. Well, the sensible result is the result that this Court has often reached in the past, which is to say to Congress, if this is what you want to do, do it in the way that, that, that you're supposed to do it. But it really isn't quite that clear what Congress wanted to do as between these two views. Well, of course, if Congress is ambiguous, then we go back to the, uh, to the default position, and the default position uh, is we go back to dictionary meaning. And this Court uh, held in McCarthy versus Bronson 
that if you just look to the dictionary definition of the term prison conditions, you're, you're not talking about excessive force cases. Um, and and, and in, in McCarthy, this Court said, however, we don't use the dictionary definition because when the Magistrates Act was passed, Congress is presumed to have been looking to Prizer. But once Congress gets mushy, as, as they really are in the PLRA, because some sections use the term prison conditions, some sections don't. And that's even true in the Title 42 amendments. Mr. So, Williams, there's a case that has come up in various forms where violence, random violence, is what characterizes the prison system. There was the uh, litigation in Alabama where the state attorney general said this, the atmosphere in this prison is jungle-like. And this court said it in Dothard against Rawlinson. Where, where do you put those cases? Those are those are excessive force cases, but it's pervasive in the prison. It's not just one beating by a guard. Would those cases come outside the Prison Litigation Reform Act, even though you're talking about a kind of conduct that pervades the entire institution? I'm not sure that this Court has ever told us exactly what the mens rea is that must be met in such a case. And I think that will be the answer to the question when that case arises. If this Court says that in any given pervasive violence situation, then the necessary mens rea remains the Johnson versus Glick one, then that's an excessive force case and it's not a prison conditions case. On the other hand, if this Court says that the necessary mens rea is simply deliberate indifference, then it is a prison condition. Well, it's hard to say it's deliberate indifference when you're beating up on someone. If you're suing the individual guard, of course, you're dealing with an instance of, of, of brutality. What I was thinking of is the more um, interesting question where the warden um, issues, a, um, issues a decree. The warden knows that this is going on. It's not deliberate indifference because it's a jungle-like atmosphere. If the warden is aware of it and is tolerating it, then it becomes policy. And then this court is going to have to say, well, what's the standard of liability for the warden? Is it deliberate indifference or is it the Johnson versus Glick? I don't know. I don't believe this court. I, I would think that just the, you said ordinary English, what do words mean when a condition pervades a prison, uh, then then it's, pris- it's a prison condition. Um, well, I think that that um, gets off into the single incident versus multiple incident issue, and I, I, I would prefer to think of it in terms of of, uh, of the mens rea. And I can conceive that, that an argument might well be made, in fact, I would be happy to make it, that where it is so pervasive that the warden is charged with actual knowledge of it, as in the municipal liability cases under Section 1983, that he's charged with knowledge of it, then I would say that uh, uh, the Johnson versus Glick standard applies, uh, and it's not a prison condition. But you could make the other argument just as well. In any event, it's an easy it's an easy line to draw so that we will know, the district courts will know, in any given case, where it falls on the line. Why of Why in the world would Congress, yeah. you can give us no inkling of why Congress would sit down and say whether there has to be exhaustion of administrative remedies ought to depend upon what state of mind the actor is going to be held to. Why is there any conceivable connection between those two issues? And, and that's what you're saying they did, that they, that, that they left it up to the future law of this court as to what, what mens rea will be required. And if, on the one hand, the mens rea is going to be, you know, uh, just deliberate indifference, then you have to exhaust. And if it's uh, intentional cruelty, you don't have to exhaust. I would think that the reason for that, if Congress had a reason, 
is that Congress knew that because of the very high bar this Court has erected in excessive force cases, combined with the fact-pleading requirement, that the concerns Congress had about frivolous litigation and undue meddling of the district courts in their business are already met by existing law, and therefore the PLRI need not be concerned with it. And indeed, I think just about everybody agrees that the concern of Congress in enacting the PLRA was precisely those two things, neither of which readily fits the excessive force model. But if, if you have uh, a guard who is sadistically beating people, uh, certainly that seems to be the sort of thing that might easily be corrected, at least for the future, by exhaustion. But that, again, is a policy question, Chief Justice. Well, it is, but when we're trying to figure out what Congress really intended here, I, I think one shies away from a distinction which is perfectly technically sound but doesn't seem to have anything to do with what people thinking about the desirability of exhaustion would have thought about. Well, when you look at the entire PLRA, and I was a little dismayed in preparing for oral argument to realize that the entire PLRA isn't in the joint appendix to our briefs. Um, but when you look at it it's in its entirety, the presence or absence of that phrase, prison conditions, is quite interesting. Uh, for instance, in Title 42, uh, prison uh, conditions um, uh, do not apply to the attorney fee cap. Rather, that relates to prisoner suits. And similarly, the distinction uh, uh, that there can be no monetary award for emotional distress unless it's accompanied by physical injury. Those are prisoner suits, not prison conditions cases. And when you look, uh, when you look further, um, uh, 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 Section 807, the lien provisions under the, uh, 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 under the Act, again, um, there's no prison conditions limitation. So clearly Congress had in mind that there are some kinds of suits by prisoners where it wants to impose more stringent limitations and others where it wants to impose some limitations but not the whole panoply of limitations. But here the prisoner's suits, is, it happens to be the caption for the provision. They use in the text prison conditions, but the caption is prison suits, isn't it? Yes, it is. And then in the, in the context of the section, they go on and draw the distinction. Sometimes it's all prisoner suits. Sometimes it's just prisoner suits about prison conditions. So I think we, we really get no place in particular from the fact of the caption. What would we do with a case where the prisoner said, these guards are beating up on me, and the reason they are is that this prison doesn't give guards any training, doesn't supervise them, so my 1983 suit is against the guards that beat me up, but they're also against the officials in the prison who are responsible for training and for monitoring. Those have to go to They go to different route. directions. And, of course, as we know, that is commonplace uh, in prisoner suits, that they have multiple counts, multiple claims, and some of them are dismissed early on, some of them go a little bit farther, uh, and so forth. That is, that is the nature of prison litigation in this particular case. The suit against the guard for beating him up uh, would not require exhaustion and would go forward. Prison conditions claims obviously would have to be exhausted had they not already been exhausted. Suppose I believe that policy was relevant. Would I then be right to think that the isolated beating case is perhaps the strongest case where you should require exhaustion for the reason that the prison doesn't want such a person on its payroll, and if the prisoner is right, they'll find out about it fast and get rid of him? No, actually, the difficulties of removing a civil servant who oh, has they'll take action. When you, when, you, when you combine all of his Loudermill rights with all of his rights under the collective bargaining agreement, moving that guard or taking meaningful disciplinary action against him is not going to be 
necessarily that fast. Of course, what you can do quickly is move the prisoner to another unit, but then you deal with what we know to be the, the reality of the, uh, the prison guard grapevine. Uh, so that there's not an easy uh, solution. Say that a prison guard who maliciously beats up on people is just there to say, stay, so to speak. Well, one would hope not. But, would. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that, like all public employees, they enjoy a number of due process protections. And like most public employees, they also enjoy uh, union protection. Many of them are not public employees anymore. I'm sorry? Many of them are not public employees anymore. That's one reason some states have moved to having uh, private companies uh, manage prisons. I agree. I agree. That is true. I, in those cases, there wouldn't be a problem in getting rid of the guy. Uh, well, they're probably still a pretty effective union contract. Uh, the guards' union is a pretty powerful force, and indeed, in this case, that was that was present. There were the uh, references to the fact that the guards' union was involved in a big dispute with the governor of Connecticut, who happened to be a friend of uh, of Mr. Nussel. So that so that that was present. Um, the um, the 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 attempt by the state to to take the Title 18 definition and move it over to Title 42, I think, is, uh, is, is equally uh, unsuccessful. Um, the fact that it's in a different part of the code is one reason why Congress certainly wouldn't have attempted to adopt it. Indeed, it's in a part of the code, Title 18, that deals with different issues from those uh, which Congress was dealing with in its Title 42 amendments. Most importantly, of course, it is explicitly limited by its terms to Section 802, that is, Title 18, uh, uh, and is not applicable elsewhere. And as this Court held in the uh, Vermont Agency of Natural uh, Resources case, uh, that at least suggests that it is inapplicable uh, to the Title 42. Also of great interest, and I think not addressed in the briefs, is that Section 803 has its own definition section, just as Section 802 does. But in the Section 803 definition, the term prison conditions or conditions of confinement is not defined. But interestingly, in Section 802 and in Section 803, there is a definition of the word prisoner. The words aren't precisely the same, but the definitions appear to have the same meaning. Now, why would Congress find it necessary to define prisoner in Section 803 when they'd already done so in 802, unless it was because they took seriously the limitation in 802 that the definitions there were limited to Section 802? Um, so I think that the attempt by the petitioners to borrow the uh, uh, Section uh, 802 language uh, and uh, incorporate that into Section 803 simply won't work. And what we are uh, left to fall back on uh, is uh, the statutory construction arguments, which I have um, previously made. Um, I hate to say it, but I think I'm out of time. Thank you. Out of time, but you're welcome. Out of ideas. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Williams. Uh, Mr. Blumenthal, you have four minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I am not completely out of ideas. A few brief ones. First, to expand perhaps on the point raised by Justice Breyer, I can't speak for all the state prison systems throughout the United States, but a prison guard who did what Mr. Nussel claimed he or they did, would be transferred, disciplined, perhaps fired by this commissioner. I am certain of that fact because we have assisted 
in that process. Indeed, some of those guards have been criminally investigated, not the guards involved in this incident, but some who have committed the kinds of acts that Mr. Nussel might complain of. There are speedy, effective, administrative remedies that can be applied to protect prisoners, and it is in the interest, may I respectfully suggest, of the state to do so, to eliminate or at least reduce prison unrest, to make sure that it isn't held liable in more serious incidents. These guards tend to repeat incidents if they are bad guards. The administrators of modern prison systems have a very powerful and compelling self-interest in using the grievance system as a management tool. Now, that may not have been on Congress's mind. Congress undoubtedly was concerned, as the legislative history clearly shows, with the fact that there were 40,000 of these lawsuits pending, prisoner petitions, constituting one quarter of the entire federal caseload. Congress wanted to streamline the system and force all of these prison petitions to go through the exhaustion process. And there is no evidence, absolutely no evidence, in the legislative history or elsewhere that it intended to carve out or make an exception for single-incident excessive force cases. And, indeed, the evidence is all to the contrary. McCarthy versus Bronson was a single incident, single episode of excessive force. But this Court said that it was included in the term conditions of confinement for purposes of the Magistrate Referral Act. That is the term that Congress understood it to be. Crawford L. confirms at 597, where I quoted it, it's, it's uh, in our view, conclusive on this point. But we would submit that the interests of the statute are best served, Congress's purposes are best served, the distinction that is suggested by the respondents is unsupported in principle and unworkable in practice for many of the same reasons that this course said in Wilson v. Sider that the single incident versus continuing practice distinction was simply illogical and impractical. If the Court has no further questions, I would Thank you, General Blumenthal. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.